So, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. It doesn't matter what the calendar says. We can always depend upon Your grace being sufficient, Your love, Your protection, Your provision, giving us everything that we need. And we thank You for this particular time that we can focus our attention upon Your mighty Word. We pray that You will help us to concentrate, that we will file what we learn into long-term memory, that we can glorify You through what You do through us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verse eight, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> We've gone through most of this already, and we are currently studying baptism because what our text is referring to is what is known as the baptism of fire. And we started the different types of baptism. Most people believe there's only one type of baptism, but indeed there are at least seven. The baptism of Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, they went across on dry land. You, you'll remember that all real baptisms are dry. Most people associate baptism with water, but real baptisms are dry and a real change takes place. The second one is the baptism of fire which I'll get to in a moment. The baptism of the cross or the cup is when Jesus Christ was identified with our sins on the cross. He voluntarily went to the cross. A real change took place when our Lord went to the cross and it was identified with our sins. That means our sin problem is no longer a problem. It's not our personal sins that keep us out of glory, the only thing that keeps anyone out of glory is their rejection of the redemption solution, which is Christ's atonement on the cross. So Jesus Christ was baptized with the cross or the cup. The cup represents the cross. When we have communion, that's what it's representing. A real baptism, Matthew 20, 22, Luke 20, uh, excuse me, Luke 12:50. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 5, Romans 6, 3, Romans 4, 1. Believers are identified with Jesus Christ. This, this occurs at the moment of salvation, and it is the mechanic. It is the way that we are identified with Christ. And every time you see in the Bible the term in Christ, you recognize, okay, that I am in Christ because God did something at the point of salvation for me, God the Holy Spirit permanently 
identified me with Jesus Christ and nothing you can do that angels can do, any other man can do, or even God himself can change that. You are in Christ forever, permanently identified. That's the one that so many of them don't know. And last time, uh, if you don't have this in your notes, you might want to put these here now. A lot of people don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's just turn to a few of these verses to start with. Acts 1.5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is our Lord instructing them that not many days from that time they're going to receive something that had never happened before. No Old Testament believer received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was unique for church age believers. And the time frame here, as it turned out to be, was ten days. Because Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after he was resurrected. Ten days after that, which is 50 days from the day he was resurrected, is Pentecost. That's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews there. <coughs> well, it did on Gentiles too, but it was in Jerusalem. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? This is referring to retroactive positional truth. We are identified with Christ's death because we are in Christ. And you'll notice the word there in verse 3. We have been, who have been baptized into Christ. That has nothing to do with water baptism. That has everything to do with a real baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going backwards. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? My thing, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Evidently, that's not the right location. What shall we, Romans 4, 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, has found? That's justification. I, that, that is the wrong uh, address. But while we're in Romans, let's go to the next book, which is First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. This is the one you should have marked in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. <clears throat> For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That would be the body of Christ, the universal church. 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. That appears to refer to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place at the same time. They both happen the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually came in phases. It started on the day of Pentecost with the Jews. And then later, there was a... I, I, when I taught this, I said it was another Pentecost, it, just to describe it. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in a particular fashion later on. And then, at Cornelius' house, the Gentiles received the baptism of the Holy Spirit those were unique instances. And now, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the same time, instantly upon the time that we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what you have to remember is most people don't even know that there is such a thing as a spirit baptism. And if you're going to make any headway with those who believe you have to be baptized in water, a ritual baptism in order to be saved, you have to present this to them so that they'll understand, oh, there's another baptism. I didn't know there was such a thing as another baptism. And when you explain it that it is God the Holy Spirit permanently identifying us with Jesus Christ, this is why we are in Christ, and it's not due to anything that we do. It's automatic when we believe in Jesus Christ. Then they can at least start to understand that uh, ritual baptism had its place, but it never had anything to do with a requirement to be saved, eternally saved. And so I said go to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse, let's start with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body... That body is the RFG, the royal family of God. That is the church age believers. And one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord one faith, one baptism. And then it says, One God, the Father of it all, is over all and through all and in all. Now we know that there are at least seven different types of baptism, but what does this mean when it's saying there is 
one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What's in view is the baptism that is so significant. The baptism that is so significant is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a, this is talking about a spirit baptism. Now, if you were talking to someone who believes in water baptism for salvation, if you presented it to him, if you went through the Scriptures and showed him in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that we were all baptized by the Spirit into one body, and this is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what identifies us with Christ. This is why we are in Christ. Saying in Christ means we are permanently identified with Him. And you say, now, do you think this would be referring to someone dunking you in water as a ritual? Or do you think that it would be referring to what God the Holy Spirit did for us at the moment of salvation whereby we are permanently identified with Jesus Christ? Which one of those do you think this would be talking about? And if they are reasonable or rational they will think, well, I would assume that what God did for me, apart from any merit on my part, which is permanent, which a real change took place, would be more important than being dunked in water. Because dunking in water never did save anyone. And for those in the church age, when they believed the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not only... It was not only necessary, it was imperative. It wasn't an option. If you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. So that is the one... It's showing the importance here. And this may illumine their minds. But then you can go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works. What is baptism? Actually, you, you can say, well, it's in the... You receive baptism, but you have to show up. You have to volunteer. You have to go into the water. And then you have someone dunk you in the water and come out. But that ritual is no more than what it is or what it was, which is a ritual. I want to make sure that you understand that before we press on. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll go back to the baptism of fire for a moment because that is what brought up this dissertation on baptism. We're still talking about a real baptism where a real change takes place. I think I'll go back to my notes because I have some good verses that, that explain this of baptism. You might have these written down. I can't remember. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. That's not the ones I'm looking for. Hold on a minute. <coughs> I'm getting to them. Have I, have I gone to verse uh, 9 and 10 yet? I don't think I have, have I? I think what I'm thinking of are these verses, Matthew 3, 11, 12, 25, 31 through 33, Luke 3, 16, 17, 
Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Um, the baptism of fire is compared with what happened in Noah's day. We went through that. Uh, Matthew 25, I know that in Matthew 25 there's a lot of uh, the sheep and the goats, the talent test and so forth. Uh, Matthew, just turn to Matthew 25 for a moment. You should remember the significance of Matthew 25, verse 41. Does anybody remember the significance about that verse? And it has to do with the baptism of fire here. Matthew 25, 41 is where it clearly delineates that the angels have already been judged. It wasn't carried out because God created a lesser creature, which is man, to prove that he is righteous and just in everything that he does. But in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's already been prepared. It wouldn't be prepared unless they were already found guilty. The trial had to already take place. It's been prepared, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been executed. The, the punishment has not been carried out. And that's where the angelic conflict comes in. That's where we understand that God is demonstrating to angels through a lesser creature, which is man, that they too, that is men, mankind, is going to share their fate if they reject the redemption solution, the grace offer of salvation. So here we say it's already been prepared. It doesn't say that it's already functional, but it's been prepared. I think what I'll do is go back. If I don't do it now, I'll get further away from it and your mind is already on uh, the baptisms. Let's go back and get the last three types of baptism. Those are the four ritual baptisms. But there are also, <coughs> excuse me, three wet baptisms. Three wet baptism. If it's wet, it means it's a ritual baptism. Water is involved. The first one we have is the baptism of Jesus, Matthew three thirteen through seventeen, and the water represented the will of the Father. So when Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, when he went down into the water, see the water always represents something. That's the ritual, the meaning of it, and the war, water represented. The sins of mankind. It was God's will that God, that Jesus Christ, be identified with the sins of the world. And we, when He went down into the water, He was essentially symbolically demonstrating that He had volunteered to take on the sins of the world. When did that become a reality? On the cross. But this was a ritual. He was identified with the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that He take on the sins of the world. The second one is the baptism by John. This is John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew 3, 1 through 11, John 1, 25 through 33. John's baptism was not the same type of baptisms that you see in the book of Acts. John, if you'll 
look in your scriptures are found in the Gospels. This is before the church age began. And when he would baptize people, the water represented the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was a real possibility that the kingdom would have started if they would have accepted, accepted Jesus Christ. And so they were, when they went down in the water, they were accepting the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and they were identifying themselves with the king and the kingdom. The kingdom was about to begin because the king was there. I think it's Acts chapter 19. Let's, let me look at that real quick. I think it's Acts chapter 19 where they, uh, some people had been baptized by the baptism of John and had not been baptized uh, with the baptism of the uh, first century church. Let's see if I can find this. Yeah, Acts chapter 19. Y'all turn to it if you like. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I'll give you time to turn there. Are you all there already? Acts 19, verse 1. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard where there is a Holy Spirit. These are people who were who believed during the uh, gospel period before the church age. And verse 3 says, And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Into John's baptism was being identified with the kingdom. They didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It didn't occur until ten days after Christ had ascended, the day of Pentecost. So they had undergone John's baptism, but it wasn't the baptism of the early church that you see so often in Acts. It was a different kind of baptism. It was divorced from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Didn't even know what it was. This was a water baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John didn't baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So you can even see in this instance that this, the book of Acts is a transitional period, and they did not receive the Holy Spirit in the same fashion that we do. We don't have to have anybody lay hands on us. We don't have to do anything. Uh, all we have to do is believe and it's automatic. But this was the transitional period and they had gone through John's baptism, but it wasn't the same baptism as the next one I'm going to show you, which is the last one. It was identifying them with the kingdom. Now here's the last one was the believer's baptism. This is found in Acts chapter 10, verse 47 through 48. There's a lot of baptizing that is going on in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you'll remember, 
that they did not have a New Testament canon of Scripture. And it was a time where they would use that not only as a, a visual aid in order to teach the spiritual things that happen at salvation because they couldn't point to the New Testament, but it also was a great separation, a separating tool. Because if you were a Jew and you got baptized, if someone heard that you got uh, baptized, then you would be ostracized by your family. You wouldn't have to worry about lapsing back into Judaism because they wouldn't have anything to do with you. You couldn't even if you wanted to. You would be persona non grata. And that was really something that was a benefit to those who had believed in Christ. And that's another reason for uh, the baptism there. The water represented identification with Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection. Now, when John was baptizing, had, John, had Jesus Christ even gone to the cross yet? No. He hadn't, he hadn't uh, died and he, hadn't been, uh, he wasn't raised yet. So that baptism of John was different than the believer's baptism during the period of the uh, first century church in Acts. That was identification with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. We can go to New Testament epistles and we can find out what happens there, they didn't. I'm talking about the spiritual things. So they were used to being taught by ritual anyway. They go into the water and they were identified with Christ's death. And when they rose up out of the water, they were being identified with His resurrection. This was teaching uh, soteriological uh, doctrines that they could not read from the text. So these are the seven different types of baptisms, at least seven. The main thing you need to remember is the difference between real baptism and ritual baptism. Of course, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of John, isn't even on the radar screen today. But there are a lot of people that put great emphasis on the baptism, water baptism. Many of them even think that you have to be water baptized to be saved. Now, when you, once you get into the, the epistles outside of Acts, you don't see much baptism anymore. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about baptism and he's, he is giving it in a light that is very negative. It, baptism has always been a very divisive, controversial issue, even in the first century. Because people were bragging, well, I was, I was baptized by uh, Apollos. Well, I was by, by, uh, baptized by Paul. And they were flaunting all this out, missed the whole point of it to, the, to where Paul said, well... Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, and in the context is water baptism. If water baptism is necessary for eternal salvation, would God say, say that to Paul? To say, I did not send you to baptize, but to preach the gospel? Was the thief on the cross baptized? You never know when this is going to crop up. We have to be ever vigilant and ready to address these issues. The first thing you want to do is, in whatever way you can, help them realize that there is a spirit baptism and there is a real bapt water baptism. There's a real and ritual. And the one that, is, that, that we really focus on is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the one that puts us in union with Christ. And it has nothing to do with water. And when you do that, they'll start to see the difference. 
Just most people just don't have a clue. In their mind, it's always about water. And then, of course, sometimes they get into the idea where whether it is dunking or sprinkling and all this nonsense. Now, the baptism of fire, though, is what we are currently on. The baptism of fire is when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. You want to know what, it's, what He's going to look like? You know what he, do you know what He's going to be like? Let's, let's take a look. Let's turn to Revelation. Turn to Revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus Christ returning at the second advent. Do I need to explain the second advent? Are y'all all on the right page with that? I hope. This is when He's actually going to come down and touch down on planet Earth, on the Mount of Olives and so forth. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Somebody else will be riding a white horse earlier than that. Remember that? That's the pseudo. This is the true. Verse 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, which I, I, I say, you connect that with verse 8, these are church age believers coming down with him. They're white and clean. They've gone through the judgment seat of Christ. We're following Him on white horses. You also see this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is going to be a mighty, mighty sight. There will be nothing like it ever when Jesus Christ returns to take back possession of the title deed of planet Earth. And he will have aligned against him all of the unbelievers. There's going to be an unbelievable war. Armageddon is just one part of it. That's one phase of what's going to take place when Jesus Christ returns. It says that the, the blood will flow the height of a bridle on a, on a horse. You notice here, he's wearing a, right, a, a robe and it's dipped in blood. This is a fierce countenance. We can't even begin to even visualize or hypothesize about the King of kings and Lord of lords coming back to planet earth after millenniums of storing up His wrath. And He's going to take care of business at that point. And every unbeliever on earth is going to be identified with fire. Fire refers to judgment and they are going to, uh, their bodies are going to enter the planet. There's going to be nothing but 
just massive amount of carnage. And be, their souls will be in torments until they await the great white throne. Now, this isn't pleasant, is it? I mean, I'm telling you something that sounds like it's gory, and no doubt it is going to be. But we can't pussyfoot around and think, oh, well, let's be nice about this. Let's be clean about it. Nothing's going to be clean about it. Nothing's going to be nice. Nothing's going to be pleasant. This is going to be the wrath of God and judgment falling like it never has before. But that is what it's going to take to rest this earth, arrest the power that is operating now away from the evil one. They're not going to go away quietly. Jesus Christ is the only one that can set things straight. Do you believe that? I believe it with all my being. There is no government. There is no person. There is no policy. There is no program. There is no group of people. There is no one that can bring peace to this earth and set it right apart from Jesus Christ. And the good news is that we'll be there. We'll see it. I'm sure that we will be applauding if that's what you do. Uh, I guess <laughs> maybe it's something else. We'll be cheering, we'll be singing hallelujah, or whatever it is. For ever since the time the curse was put on planet earth, it's been abiding. The Jews have been under the foot of the Gentiles all these times, all these years, everything is going to change after Jesus Christ comes back. But the first thing that happens is the baptism of fire, and that is a, going to be an awesome sight. I, I can't even, no one could even, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's, even though he showed the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea, how do you show this in, in its glory the way it's going to be? So what we are addressing here with the baptism of fire has nothing to do with water, but it should be a great encouragement to us. This world is going to become a place that is going to be so different. During his millennial reign, it's going to be astounding. Even the ferocity of animals are, is going to be gone. There's not going to be any manipulation of the markets. There's going to be free enterprise. There's not going to be all of the restraints and all of the... Uh, you could just go on and on of the ills that we have today that are not going to be there. It's going to be absolutely tremendous and wonderful, but everybody is not going to be on board. You know why it says that he's going to rule with a rod of iron? Because there are going to be those who are wanting to resist. Wanting to resist. But they're not going to be successful. He will crush anyone and anything that tries to go against his rule. We're not talking about the little baby Jesus here. We're talking about the Lion of Judah coming back and taking care of business. And when he does that, there's not going to be any messing around. If you rape, if you murder, if you do these type things, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to get to a bunch of lawyers and get together and figure out, well, 20 years from now, uh, maybe after all these stays, maybe you might get an injection and maybe not. You know what's going to happen. Justice and righteousness will flood the earth. Knowledge of Him will flood the earth. The disease, the sickness, all the things that we have to put up with today are going to be gone. Bureaucrats will be no more. Because you know who's going to be running the show? Jesus Christ is going to be running the show, but who is He going to use? 
I'm looking at them right now. We're in preparation. We are being prepared for what's next. And I don't know about you, but I have no time and no use for bureaucrats that just do nothing but throw sand in the cogs of progress. Well, it's going to be a great thing, but it's going to be an awesome thing. Uh, it's going to be a sobering thing. This is going to be a prelude to what's going to happen at the great white throne. You know, I'm not certain. I guess, I don't know whether we're going to be at the great white throne or not, but I know we're going to be at this one, and we'll see this happen. Right? For all these millennium, millennials, I guess I should say, the Jews have been trampled underfoot, but guess what's going to happen? It's going to be just the other way around. The nations, the Gentile nations, are going to be required to bring tribute to the Jews. And Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world. And those nations that don't bring tribute, God will just simply turn off their water. It won't rain. Kind of reminds me of uh, what Elijah did. Remember that? He strolls in there and tells King Ahab. This is wonderful. I mean, does this not give you hope? How much faith do you have in man being able to turn it all around? It's not going to happen. The man is going to be the one to do it. And he's going to, it's going to start with the baptism of fire when he comes back. Okay. In First Thess- excuse me, Second Thessalonians, We just went over and concluded verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We've already gone over that in detail. Let's move on to the next verse, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. We'll start with this. You know that there's some controversy here, don't you? And, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. What does eternal destruction mean? All these who are unbelievers, are they going to be annihilated? Are they going to cease to exist? Is that what this is talking about? Or are they going to go on in, in full cognizance of what's going on for all eternity and will be punished a separate from, and apart from God? Well, we'll see. Let's see. First of all, this is by... J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible. This is what J. Vernon says. Scripture not only says very little about heaven, it says less about the condition of the lost. It is so awful that the Holy Spirit has drawn a veil over it. There's nothing to give... uh, I've got to change my... um, Let's see if that's better. Here we go. There is nothing <clears throat> given to satisfy the morbid curiosity 
are the lust for revenge. When God judges, He does not do it in a vindictive manner. So when we, when we would seek revenge, we are doing it in a vindictive way. God does it in a way of serving justice. He is doing what justice and righteousness demands. And it's not going to be a pretty sight, as I said. He does it in order to vindicate His righteousness and His holiness. There is nothing in the Scripture to satisfy our curiosity about hell, but there is enough said to give us a warning. It does not mean that it is less real because so little is said. Actually, Christ Himself said more about hell than, any, than did anyone else. Hell is an awful reality. I'm not going to speculate about it. I'm just, go, I'm just quoting what is said right here. He is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You know, there's such a thing to, that exists today called universalism, and it is rampant. I can't tell you how many people believe that if you die, you just go to heaven. These are the same people that would say we're all God's children. Well, we're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. So many people do not believe in a literal hell, in a literal place where people are going to suffer for all eternity, separated from God. And yet the Bible gives us this information over and over again. It's just hard for them to accept a loving God being able to do that. It's easy to accept a loving God, but not a just God. And if you believe in a literal hell, it seems to go with that idea that you are accountable and people don't want to be accountable. And the last thing they want to do is be accountable with the consequences being an everlasting separation from God in a burning, torturous hell. And so the easiest thing to do is just say, well, everybody goes to heaven. Besides, it's not very pleasant or politically correct when someone dies and you say, are they a believer? Well, to most people, what difference does it make? They all go to heaven anyway. Of course, the Bible is, does not condone that or substantiate it at all. There are many today who do not believe that hell is a place that actually exists. Many believe that there is no judgment or justice. Everyone either uh, will either go to heaven or will cease to exist at physical death. That's called annihilation. A lot of people believe that if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, then when you die, you don't go to a place of torments called, that's a holding place until the great white throne takes place where they are judged and then they are sentenced or, or at least it's carried out, they're tossed into the lake of fire. And you know, when we say the lake of fire, what do we mean anyway? Hell is a hell of a mess when it comes to understanding it. Because a lot of people think when someone dies, they're unbelievers, they go to hell. They think they're in flames. No, that's not what it is at all. And there was a different place for Old, old, uh, uh, for old Testament believers where they went. And that place is already empty. They're in heaven now. But all unbelievers of every dispensation, of every time, go to a place and they can't go to the lake of fire until they're judged. They're going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. 
But what is the lake of fire? Is, is there real fire there? Is, there, is it going to be burning? And is it, um, as, as Jay Vernon said, there's very little that is said about it. Even there's, there's not a whole lot even given about heaven. We get glimpses and hints here and there. We know that heaven is going to be a wonderful place. But the contrary is the true for hell. And who likes to talk about hell? Outside of expletives, when was the last time you talked about hell? When was the last time you mentioned hell? It's not a very popular conversation piece, is it? And yet it's real. I think if we, if we were not so shy, and when we were talking to people and giving them the gospel, and they are pretty negative towards it, they are sophisticated. I just saw a show. Uh, Greg and I was watching this show from Netflix. When was it? Last night. And this guy said, uh, well, I don't believe in talking to an invisible person and making wishes to an invisible person. I think that's called schizophrenia. And then this other, this other woman said, yeah, I don't know about uh, the, uh, those Bible characters like Buddha. Buddha. And nobody caught it. Well, Greg and I caught him. I mean, what are, the, what are the youngsters? They hear this and they think, oh, okay, Buddha's a Bible character. Hell is a real place. I can, I can only remember one time in my life that I gave the gospel and somebody outright rejected it and said, I don't believe that, period. That's nonsense. They told me that. And I said, okay, just go to hell. And that shocked them. Is that not what's going to happen to them? I said, look, you're going to wind up as Jesus Christ, as your judge, not as your Savior. You will be judged and you're going to be found wanting. You're going to be tossed in the lake of fire for all eternity. You can giggle and laugh and say, ah, ha, ha, oh, isn't that funny now? But it's not going to be so funny when you're facing Jesus Christ and you're looking eternity in an unbelievable, torturous hell, separated from light, from God, from everything that's good for all eternity. It's not going to be so funny then. People, they make fun of hell. Have you ever heard people say, yes, I believe in hell. Hell is right here on earth. It's hell on earth. <laughs> Don't have a clue. I've been around construction workers that giggled. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to hell. I'll probably get there before you do. <laughs> and that's people's attitude. What we're looking at with the, with the baptism of fire is awesome. Anyone that giggles at the baptism of fire and what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns is a fool. And they're going to live to regret it. All unbelievers are going to be resurrected. They're going to stand before Jesus Christ. The punishment of the wicked will be neither temporary nor will it be annihilation, but it will continue throughout eternity and those being punished will be conscious, conscious, it is eternal death as opposed to eternal life. Let's get a few scriptures and then we'll quit. This is one I was saying a while ago, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. When is this going to take place? The great white throne. Depart from me into... See, the eternal 
Fire doesn't come into play until after they are judged. God is just. There's got to be this judgment. Matthew 25:46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you have eternal life over here, don't you have to have eternal judgment on the other side? If it's not eternal judgment, how can it be eternal life? Mark 9, 43 through 44. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Uh, you have to be able to take what's literal and what's symbolic here. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands or go into hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is not annihilation, folks. That is ongoing and it's eternal. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until the time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. What book is that? The book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of Old Testament saints at the second advent. If they are going to, uh, the dust of the ground will awake and these to everlasting life, but the others into everlasting contempt, not annihilated. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a... What is this? Well, I don't... Receives anybody reading this? Oh, a mark. Okay. On a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger... And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Oop. Sorry about that. Huh? That's good because I'm going through a lot of... <laughs> I'm, I'm just going through all these things trying to find what I just had. What, what verse were we reading? Okay, I lost the whole thing, so I'm just going to read it from the Bible. Revelation 14, 9, okay. And, a, <clears throat> and another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone, the presence of his holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and who receives the mark of his name. Does that sound like it's annihilation? 
So when we're, when we're looking at our verse and it says that into eternal uh, destruction, it's not talking about annihilation. It's talking about an ongoing eternal punishment. And you know what they're going to get, unbelievers that is? Exactly what they want. They don't want Christ. They rejected Christ. They want to be separate from Christ. They want to be away from Christ. That's exactly what they're going to get. They're going to be away from His glory. He's going to be away from His power, which is also in our verse, in verse 9 and 10. And they won't receive our experience or probably even see all the glory of our Lord, probably be in darkness because in God is light and there is no darkness in Him whatsoever. The Bible describes this place as a place of uh, gnashing of teeth, great horror. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because it's not a popular subject, but it may be just what you, when you're talking to someone that they need to know, this is a reality. The great majority of the population of the world are going to wind up there. But they don't have to. And so it's up to us to be able to change that, uh, change their destiny by giving them the gospel. That's how important it is. Doesn't it help when you think about how horrible hell is? Isn't that a motivation to get past our skittishness, our nervousness, our fear, to tell someone about Jesus Christ? We'll pick this up next time. We're getting close to chapter 2, which is a great eschatological chapter. And it's something that the second advent is going to be great glory and great reward and wonderful things for some and absolute horror for others. Father, we thank You for this time. As the end, as the end of this year draws near, and we see Your faithfulness, we realize that we're on your time clock. We don't know when these things are going to happen, but we know they will happen, and we know that we will be protected from this baptism of fire, that you will even share your glory with us, and it's going to be wonderful beyond description when you start your reign and your kingdom. Help us to focus on these things and get out of the mundane details that we deal with and lift our spirit when we think about your promises. And may the horror of hell be a great motivational force to give us the, what it takes to give the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.